Brother Gary L. Browning is a professor of Russian language, literature, and culture at Brigham Young University. At the present time, he chairs the Germanic and Slavic Languages and Literatures Department at the Y. He is the former chair of the Faculty Advisory Council at BYU and served as the director and then dean of University Honors Education at Brigham Young University. Prior to teaching at the Y, he was a professor of Russian language, literature, and culture at Burnmaw College in Pennsylvania. Brother Browning received his bachelor's degree from BYU, his master's degree from Syracuse University, and his doctorate from Harvard, all in Russian and Slavic languages and literatures. Brother Browning is the author or editor of four books and many articles published in scholarly journals. His most recent book is entitled Russia and the Restored Gospel. He has been the recipient of various awards, including Germanic and Slavic Professor of the Year in 1987 and 1997, the Carl G. Mazur General Education Professor, 1997 through 2000, and in 1998, the Division of Continuing Education Teacher of the Year. Brother Browning is a former Finnish missionary and was the founding mission president for both the Finland Helsinki East and the Russia-Moscow missions. In that sense, brothers and sisters, he is a true Latter-day pioneer. He has also served in a stake presidency on high councils and as a member of Bishop Bricks. He is married to Joanne Wagstaff, and they are the parents of five children, and they have five grandchildren. Brother Browning. It's a delight and an honor to be with you here at Ricks today. I feel like I've come home to my southeastern Idaho roots. This is where I was born and married, and this is where my dear family members, many of them, still live. And to be with you on this day is a tremendous honor and blessing and a great joy for me. It's humbling to contemplate the blessings and responsibility we members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share through the restoration of all things. For instance, of all Christians, only we have the advantage, through the Book of Mormon, of knowing what Christ taught inhabitants of ancient America when he visited them following his crucifixion and resurrection. By comparing that with Christ's New Testament teachings, we gain perspective on what the Savior apparently considered most essential in ancient America, in addition to an invitation to participate in saving ordinances, Christ taught those who had survived the recent destruction how to live a truly worthy life and progress toward perfection. These teachings from the Sermon on the Mount in both Testaments of Jesus Christ, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, witness to the Savior's principal message. In both accounts, we are told, among much else, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, shall, ye shall, shall be ma measured to you again. Thus, <clears throat> within the, the LDS community, we have two witnesses to this truth, and a third closely related and even more sobering admonition found in Doctrine and Covenants 64, this is your cue, 64, <laughs> verses 9 through 10. There we read <clears throat> that rather than judging, quote, ye ought to forgive one another, for he that forgiveth not his brother his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord, for there remaineth in him 
the greater sin. I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. Close quote. Why might one who refuses to forgive his brother be guilty of a greater sin? Is the sin of being unforgiving and judging another greater than that of breaking any of the Ten Commandments, including adultery and murder? If it is, then this Doctrine and Covenants teaching revealed by Jesus Christ has deep ramifications. I'd like to know how you understand this greater sin and invite you to email me your ideas. Use my university address, Gary underline key Browning at BYUEDU. Remember to tap the underline key once between my two names. May I begin the discussion with a few thoughts about why judging instead of forgiving is called the greater sin. We all know when confronting an important issue such as this, it's wise to return to basics and proceed from there. Let's do that. When the Savior was asked by a lawyer, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus responded, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy, thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we know from a parallel New Testament account that Jesus then explained who is meant by one's neighbor through relating the powerful parable of the Good Samaritan. One's neighbor, we discover, is anyone, anywhere, and anytime about whose needs we become aware and whom we are capable of assisting. How does one love God and neighbor with all one's heart, soul, and mind? Might it be with all of the pure feelings and emotions of one's heart, with all the spiritual sensitivities and tenderness of one's soul, and with all the logic and mental capacities of one's mind? Apparently, we are to love God and neighbor unwaveringly, unstintingly, and indiscriminately. As Brigham Young taught, if nine, beggars, nine of ten beggars are unworthy, nonetheless it is better to help all ten than, quote, turn away the truly worthy and truly needy person among them, close quote. In general, we believing Christians genuinely love and have a desire to worship God with all our hearts, souls, and minds. However, for most of us, there are times when we observe or even experience apparently unexplainable and seemingly unmotivated suffering, ranging from something like the 200,000 people killed in a 1908 Sicilian earthquake and tidal wave, to incomprehensible abuse of a small, sinless child, to as yet unanswered prayers for spiritual confirmation or inspiration. Then doubts arise and our faith is tried, as was Father Lehi's in the midst of, quote, sufferings and afflictions in the wilderness, close quote. In Nephi's account, quote, also my father began to murmur against the Lord his God, close quote. Amid sufferings and afflictions, might we respond by inwardly asking and hence implicitly judging in our hearts, souls, and minds, where is God in my need? Why does he seem so distant, cold, and silent? 
Or are we able to suspend judgment for a time as the Spirit works to console and teach us to have deeper sensitivities and understanding? Can we maintain our heart, soul, and mind's love for our truly loving God, whose way of teaching and promoting growth often are not ours, and whose commitment to humankind's gift of free agency is deep, deeper than at times from our limited perspective we may wish? On the other hand, regarding the second great commandment, perhaps our biggest difficulty in loving our neighbors near and far is our strong inclinations to think we can define others' motivations and intentions. In other words, we also are too prone and quick to judge our neighbors. Judging God or neighbor is a perilous undertaking, an awesome responsibility. We do well to avoid it unless we know much about the other's heart, soul, and mind, as well as genetic predispositions, mental conditions, and environmental influences, such as impairments from disease, the effects of medication and drugs, a, <clears throat> a body chemistry imbalance, peer pressures, inordinate stress, discouraging family relationships, poor nutrition, and sleep dep deprivation. Brigham Young provided a simple standard against which to measure our capacities for judging another. Quote, Let no man judge his fellow being unless he knows he has the mind of Christ. Close quote. From my own and observed experience, rarely does a person behave from a single impulse or motivation. In general, motivations are as multifaceted as our hearts, souls, and minds. We are all astonishingly and diversely complex beings. Partially depending upon myriad circumstances, we may behave one way on a given occasion and later a different way in what appears to be similar circumstances. I have heard a person say about another individual or another entire people after observing an example of apparently poor behavior, now we see their true face. That may be a true face, but other times or another person's influence may evoke much different responses. Even those we might call bad people have made over a lifetime many good decisions and performed many good deeds and will yet do so in their lives. Those deeds also present potential true faces. From time to time, my long-suffering wife has said to me after I have behaved poorly, others don't know your true nature. As usual, she is right, of course. No one on this earth knows me as thoroughly as she does. But she and I also know my true nature includes an urgent yearning to be more righteous and worthy and a searing conscience when I'm not. Perhaps like most husbands, I cling tightly to the hope expressed by Ralph Waldo Emerson, every man is entitled to be valued by his best moment. All of us know we should strive to be consistently good. Our ultimate common goal is to become perfect, as our Christ and our Heavenly Father, whom we worship and sincerely desire to emulate. James states the ideal of integrity this way. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? 
so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. This is indisputable. Yet people are not fountains or fig or olive trees. We must strive a lifetime and usually beyond to become as integritous as the plant kingdom. Through reference to a master Russian writer, may I now share additional important perspectives on the concern I'm treating. That is, on the one hand, an injunction to fervently and unwaveringly love God and neighbor, while on the other, our struggle against shared human tendency to judge rather than to forgive and love. <clears throat> For me, the insights of Fyodor Dostoevsky are expressed with particular power and persuasion in his masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. In this novel, three brothers, Dmitri, Alyosha, and Ivan, broadly speaking, represent attractive as well as repellent features of the heart, soul, and mind, respectively. Today I'll refer to two of the brothers, Alyosha and Ivan, who represent soul and mind in the Karamazov family. Alyosha is a young man earnestly preparing for monastic life. It is through him, and especially his spiritual father, Zosima, that we learn of Dostoevsky's Secret of Renewal, or Path to the Attainment of a State of Paradise. Alyosha's older brother, Ivan, is far more rational than spiritual. He is a man essentially, although of course not entirely, of the mind. Through Ivan, we see the progression from over-reliance on the mind to rejection rather than love of God and humankind. In a memorable conversation with the spiritual Alyosha, Ivan confesses, I could never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's just one's neighbors, to my mind, that one cannot love." Close quote. And further, quote, Christ-like love for men is a miracle impossible on earth. Close quote. As preface to his troubling Grand Inquisitor, this legend, Ivan explains to Alyosha why he cannot accept God's world and humankind upon it, owing in part to several dreadful, but Dostoevsky insists, real-life examples of abhorrent cruelty to innocent, helpless children, Ivan rejects the idea of a kind, loving God who can allow such atrocities to occur. Ivan's principal response to such abuse is to demand from God retribution here and now. <clears throat> to atone for the innocent suffering of the ch children. Failing retribution, Ivan will perpetually judge God and man to be scoundrels. In the following chapter, entitled The Grand Inquisitor, set in 16th century Spain at the time of the Bloody Inquisition, Ivan imagines Christ coming to Seville and being imprisoned by the Grand Inquisitor. Alone with Christ in his cell, the Inquisitor argues that human beings are, quote, weak, vicious, worthless, and rebellious, and that man is tormented by no greater anxiety than to find someone quickly to whom he can hand over that gift of freedom with which the ill-fated creature is born, close quote. 
Christ, the Inquisitor charges, has misunderstood man's nature. He has thought too highly of man and respected him too much, as if man could, quote, with free heart, decide for himself what is good and what is evil, having only thy image before him as his guide, close quote. The Grand Inquisitor contends that anyone looking around at humanity will see that only a very few, the elect, are able to use their freedom righteously. Most abuse freedom and therewith harm others and themselves. Thou, the Inquisitor asserts, hast only the elect while we give rest to all, close quote through restraining them by severe judgment and punishment. Yvonne concludes that deep down man responds not to freedom, but rather in superstitious awe to, quote, miracle, mystery, and authority, close quote, the destroyers of personal freedom and individual responsibility. Thus, Yvonne judges God for allowing horrible abuse, suffering, and death of innocent, defenseless children, and he judges his neighbor because neighbors because they are not only mean-spirited but hopelessly weak and confused, inclined to follow another who is more powerful, resourceful, and enticing than they. We humans, Yvonne asserts through the Inquisitor, eagerly give away our freedom to those who will provide us with assuring answers and material security, regardless of the high cost to us in liberty and integrity. As Dostoevsky concluded this section of his novel, he realized he had unleashed logically powerful arguments, which somehow he must now counter. Dostoevsky chose to rebut them not with point-by-point counter-arguments, but through a higher spiritual logic. Yet he worried whether he could provide the necessary and sufficient response. Through Alyosha's mentor, Father Zosima, Dostoevsky undertakes the task. Zosima pleads for humankind to redirect attention from an obsession with justice and retribution to a generous, joyful, and active love of God and one's neighbor, as Jesus enjoined in the two great commandments. Zosima's assumption is that life once was paradise and could become such again. Human nature is essentially good, for God is our Heavenly Father. We frequently distort our primal goodness, but one can always yearn and strive for a return to a state of paradise, our natural birthright. In Zosima's words, quote, look around you at the gifts of God, the clear sky, the pure air, the tender grass, the birds. Nature is beautiful and sinless, and we, only we, are godless and foolish, and we don't understand that life is a paradise, for we have only to understand that, and it will at once be fulfilled in all its beauty, close quote. As a people, we are unlikely to attain this goal of renewal if our hearts, souls, and minds are set on secular justice and revenge. Rather, Zosima points to an essential element of his secret of renewal. 
We must forego judgment of God and man, if only because none of us is without guilt ourselves. Additionally, Zosima makes a further very bold assertion in declaring that we are not only guilty for our own misdeeds, but also, in ways he will suggest, for the sinful lives of others. Zosima realizes if he can convince his followers that they too are guilty for others' unworthy behavior, their inclination to judge will decrease. Quoting Zosima, Remember particularly that you cannot be a judge of anyone, for no one can judge a criminal until he recognizes that he is just such a criminal as the man standing before him, and that he perhaps is more than all men to blame for that crime. In Zosima's experience, this startling assertion often has been met with ridicule. How are we as guilty as a criminal, say a murderer? This seemingly utterly illogical, this seems utterly illogical as, for that matter, May Doctrine and Covenants 64.9, which we've just read, that the greater sin remains in an unforgiving accuser regardless of whether the accusation is true. For all of us who desire some logical basis for his teaching, Zosima obliges, believing that, quote, all is like an ocean, all is flowing and blending. A touch in one place sets up movement at the other end of the earth, close quote. Zosima suggests an action may result in essentially endless repercussions. For example, quote, you pass by a little child you pass by spiteful, with ugly words, with wrathful heart. You may not have noticed the child, but he has seen you and your image, unseemly and ignoble, may remain in his defenseless heart. You don't know it, but you may have sown an evil seed in him, and it may grow, and all because you were not careful before the child, because you did not foster in yourself a careful, actively benevolent love. Thus, <clears throat> close quote, thus through a careless bad example, we may cause hurt and engender evil without even realizing it. As substantiation, Dostoevsky provides several examples in the novel of an unintentional hurt resulting from such a simple act as passing by another and averting one's eyes. The other person interprets such behavior as stemming from dislike for or judgment of him. He feels hurt and rejected, becomes angry, even treats others harshly, and desires revenge on him who is his offender. In the lifetime of an individual, how many times could one have given carelessly an intentional, unconscious offense, the effects of which may have reverberated far and wide even to the criminal before you. If our guilt may arise from a bad example, so it does, contends Zosima, even more from the insufficiency of our good example. Each of us should say, I am guilty for, quote, if I had been righteous myself, perhaps there would have been no criminal standing before me, close quote. Further, Zosima even cautions the person who may feel he has set a good example, but which sinners do not accept 
quote, if the people around you are spiteful and callous and will not hear you, fall down before them and beg their forgiveness, for in truth, you are to blame for their not wanting to hear you. And if you cannot speak to them in their bitterness, serve them in silence and in humility, never losing hope." Close quote. Finally, here is Zosima's culminating pronouncement on an insufficiently good example. Quote, if the evil doings of men move you to indignation and overwhelming distress, even to a desire for vengeance on the evildoers, shun above all things that feeling. Go at once and seek suffering for yourself as though you were yourself guilty of that wrong. Accept, accept that suffering and bear it and your heart will find comfort and you will understand that you too are guilty. For you might have been a light to the evildoers, even as the one man sinless, and you were not a light to them. If you had been a light, you would have lightened the path for others too. And the evildoer might perhaps have been saved by your light from his sin. And even though your light was shining, yet you see men were not saved by it, Hold firm and doubt not the power of the heavenly light. Believe that if they were not saved, they will be saved hereafter. And if they are not saved hereafter, then their sons will be saved. For your light will not die, even when you are dead. The righteous man departs, but his light remains." <clears throat> Zosima thus makes his reply to the Grand Inquisitor in all of us. The answer to evil around us is preferably not to judge that evil, although reason cries out for punishment, but to some degree at least to accept responsibility for it, to assume we too are or could be, at least in a measure, guilty for it. Since we all probably have harmed others, maybe many others, through our bad example, even if unintentional, and the effect of this bad example may have radiated out like circles across water disturbed by a falling stone. And since our good example, in some cases, has proven too feeble to win back our sinful neighbors, we have sufficient reason not to judge but to forgive and love freely and unceasingly. This is Zosima's secret of renewal, his path to paradise and spiritual wholeness and away from soul-parching feelings of vengeance and rejection of God and neighbor, whom we are to love with all our hearts, souls, and minds. And again, if we can't or won't forgive, then we stand condemned before the Lord, and perhaps the greater sin does remain in us. <clears throat> you may say, but what about the sinner's responsibility for his own behavior? Doesn't he bear any guilt? Of course he does. That is self-evident. But Zosima's emphasis is on us, the self-appointed accusers and judges. If Zosima can help us understand our complicity in the blame, perhaps we will be less quick to condemn and more likely to love our neighbors with all or at least more of our hearts, souls, and minds. And our good example may lead a soul towards salvation. 
In Joseph F. Smith's view, quote, I do not believe there is a soul in the world that has absolutely lost all conception and admiration of that which is good and pure when he sees it. Many people have abandoned themselves to evil and have come to the conclusion that there is no chance for them. While there is life, there is hope. While there is repentance, there is a chance for forgiveness." Elder Dallin H. Oaks, in an enlightening August 1999 Ensign article entitled, Judge Not and Judging, contributes a further crucial dimension. Quote, we must refrain from making final judgments on people because we lack the knowledge and the wisdom to do so. Even the Savior, during his mortal ministry, refrained from making final judgments. We see this in the account of the woman taken in adultery. After the crowd in, who intended to stone her had departed, Jesus asked her about her accusers. Hath no man, conde man condemned thee? <clears throat> when she answered no, Jesus declared, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. In this context, the word condemn apparently refers to the final judgment. The Lord obviously did not justify the woman's sin. He simply told her that he did not condemn her. That is, he would not pass final judgment on her at that time. This interpretation is confirmed by what he then said to the Pharisees. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. The woman taken in adultery was granted time to repent, time that would have been denied by those who wanted to stone her." Quote. Thus, in addition to our being at least to some degree guilty of another sin owing to our unguarded, even unintentional bad example, and to our too feeble good example, we could become guilty of hindering or even depriving another of an opportunity to repent were we hastily to judge our neighbor. Here our greatest fault may be in diminishing or destroying another's sense of hope for forgiveness and the possibility of regaining a feeling of worthiness. <clears throat> for this reason, too, of us it is required that we forgive all men, lest the greater sin remain in us. Elder Oaks further urges us to refrain from final judgments, quoting from the hymn we sang a few minutes ago, Who am I to judge another when I walk imperfectly? In the quiet heart is hidden sorrow that the eye can't see. Who am I to judge another? Lord, I would follow thee. Yet Elder Oaks does acknowledge the need at times for intermediate, not final, judgments within a relatively few conditions. Summarizing how such judgments are to be made, he states, quote, In the intermediate judgments we must make, we should take care to judge righteously. We should seek guidance of the Spirit in our decisions. We should limit our judgments to our own stewardships. Whenever possible, we should refrain from judging people until we have an adequate knowledge of the facts. 
So far as possible, we should judge circumstances rather than people. In all our judgments, we should apply righteous standards. And in all of this, we must remember the commandment to forgive." Close quote. As we employ these criteria before making judgments, we find most of us need engage in judging far less frequently than we might be inclined. Elder Stephen L. Richards provides this corroboration, quote, Someone has said that the supreme charity of the world consists in simple obedience to the divine command, judge not. Certain it is that a large part of the unhappiness of the world results from inconsiderate judgment. Many a pillow is wet with the sobs of those who are its victims. We cannot read the hearts of men. We may not know their good intentions. We often judge them only by their failures, and we are unkind enough to circulate our judgment in the form of rumors and gossip, and thus do irreparable damage." Close quote. Related, I am impressed by a fine teacher's succinct and bracing observation quoted by Elder Marvin J. Ashton. The best and most clear indicator that we are progressing and progressing spiritually and coming under Christ is the way we treat other people. Close quote. Surely that treatment should include a willingness to forgive and a reluctance to judge. I close with an example of the potential danger of judging our neighbor and of, of how doing so could result in a greater sin remaining in us. It suggests how perhaps we may ourselves be guilty unintentionally, of unintentionally, ignorantly setting a bad example and an insufficiently good example. In this case, I believe our careless judgment and too feeble good light nearly resulted in a disaster of incalculable proportions. I refer in, in general to the Cold War with Russia. As one who relatively frequently traveled to and studied about Russia, I could see misunderstanding and distortion on both sides of the Atlantic. Regrettably, many there and here were ready to pass final judgment and, if sufficiently provoked, even unleash a nuclear holocaust especially on the enemy government and military, if only one side or the other could feel assured it would somehow escape retaliation. At the time, most of us could not imagine a scenario according to which the restored gospel of Jesus Christ would ever be preached in Russia. That would never happen in our lifetime, not ever, we assumed, with the atheistic communist control of Soviet society. Yet when Mikhail Gorbachev became leader of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union, he initiated fundamental reforms which resulted, among much else, in LDS missionary activity commencing in the USSR early in 1990, nearly two years before the fall of Soviet communism. As a result, Today, some of you already have served and others of you will yet serve as missionaries in the currently 13 LDS missions in the former Soviet Union, where in one short decade, 
thousands of previously Soviet citizens have become members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As only one example, consider a few words excerpted from a conversion account of one of the Russian citizens, these Russian citizens, a former Soviet army officer, approximately my age. He is one of those who may have been among the first killed in a superpower confrontation. His name is Vladimir Krivanogov. Quote, I am a military radio engineer by education. I served in the army for 27 years. Now I am a colonel in the reserves. How did I come to God? In early July of 1992, on a warm and sunny Saturday, my family and I were going for a walk on the square off Pokrovsky Boulevard. Two very nice young men approached us. They introduced themselves as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Elder Pingree and Elder Bala. They left me with a very favorable impression. I especially remember their faces, big smiles, clear eyes, and you could see right away as you looked at them that they knew why they were living on this earth. At first I was merely curious. I wanted to find out who these Americans were. As a professional soldier, I had been taught for many years that America was our enemy number one. We invited them home and started talking with them about God. Up to this time, I had no desire to know God, and I had neither read the Bible nor had a goal of doing so. But I did believe in an endless ocean of worlds, and that without doubt there existed in the universe an intelligence higher than our own. This was my God. Therefore, it was easy for me to speak with the missionaries. Following our discussion, they invited us to a church service at Sretienko Street. I had not planned to choose a church of my own. By this time, I already had learned something about the rites and services of the Muslim, Catholic, and Russian Orthodox churches. I could see clearly that if I had to decide which church to join, I would begin by getting to know God's servants, or for investigators of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the missionaries. We later realized that all of us, the members of the Church, are God's servants. At first, however, it was the elders who appealed to us. I am happy that the missionaries, while engaged in their labors, crossed my path. I am happy that, together with my family and other believers, we are searching for God in our true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints." Close quote. Vladimir was baptized a member of the LDS Church in August 1992. During the latter part of my time as mission president and for a while beyond, Brother Krivonogov served as president of the Central Moscow Branch. During and since my mission, I've asked myself, who were we from afar to judge men and women like Vladimir Krivonogov and many others when we ourselves walked imperfectly? I'm convinced we would have done better then or whenever we are inclined to judge to consider the sobering words of another Russian and Nobel laureate, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, quote, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, 
and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Close quote. My hope is that we may develop a desire to continue improving in our ability to refrain from judging God and our neighbors, and rather love them with all our hearts, souls, and minds, in order that a greater sin not remain with us, and that we will gain a clearer understanding of how we possibly share in the guilt of another of others through unintentionally setting a bad example or inadequately, unconvincingly setting a good example. Thus, we should not presume to pass final judgment on another, perhaps thereby hindering or worse, effectively preventing that person from repenting. May we more fully and consistently keep the two great commandments in the law to love God and our neighbor with all our hearts, souls, and minds. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.